0: bring praise unto His name, I invite you to stand as we turn uh, to our scripture lesson this morning uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, as we turn once more to this epistle of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, we uh, pick up uh, Paul's letter in the 34th verse, and we read uh, through verse 49. Now let us hear the word of our God. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 34. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one! What you sow is not made alive until it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body and is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the heavenly man." Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to these words this morning, these words to which You have called our attention to, God, may You raise us up into Your presence, and may we hear these words, not as the words of men, but as the words given from above. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As Paul continues in this series of arguments, one of the objections that the Greeks especially have brought to bear concerning the resurrection is, well, what happens to the body? Here, Paul, you are speaking of a resurrection, but if we go out unto the graves in Corinth and dig them up, what we will find? We will find bodies that are decomposing. We will find bodies that have turned to dust. So what is it that you mean? Certainly you can't mean that the body remains in perfect state until the day that Christ returns. Well what are you talking about here Paul and and what benefit is it to us? if the body that is raised from the dead is different from the body that we have now. Well again, one of the things that Paul has dealt with in this first letter to Corinth is this misunderstanding of the nature of salvation itself. We remember again that this is not the first time that Paul has used the word foolish. Now, as is usually the case in our translations, Paul here is using a much more direct word than foolish. You know, it's kind of a a nice way to say it. Paul here is questioning their intelligence. And he's questioning their intelligence in a way that usually would get your hand slapped by your mother. This is a derogatory uh, action that Paul is taking. And when we think about why he is speaking so strongly, it's because of what it is that he is talking about. You see, these questions about what happens to the body, what is the resurrection, what is eternal life, what is the gospel itself, are not matters that we can trifle with. They are literally the difference between life and death. And so for Paul, as he's conversing with these Greeks who are blind to the truth, he is awakening their consciences, he's purposely riling them up. That they might see the reality of what's before them. In verse 20 of chapter 1, Paul says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than than men. When Paul here again is using this language of foolishness, what he is saying is that the Greeks know nothing. They have no comprehension of the truth and of reality. Truly, they have lived their lives not only in ignorance, but in a kind of willful ignorance. Again, we see this as Paul preaches on uh, the Acropolis in Athens. In Acts 17, as Paul is disputing with their philosophers, you know, he sees the unknown God, right? That, that, that uh, stone edifice that they put up as kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, we have idols made to all the gods that we know, Just to kind of play it safe, why don't we put up one to the unknown God so that when we die we can say, hey, we worshipped you even if we didn't know who you were. Of course, we as those who have been given the wisdom of God see the foolishness of that kind of mindset. The idea that the supposedly unknown God would be like, well, at least you tried. That's of course not how our God works. Because our God is not the unknown God. Our God has revealed Himself unto men. He's revealed Himself both in the creation itself, as we hear the Apostle Paul say in Romans 1, as uh, as David says in Psalm 19, as David repeats in Psalm 40, When the unbeliever wakes up in the morning, he wakes up because of the mercy of God. When the unbeliever looks out his kitchen window and sees the sun rising, he does so because God's mercy has allowed the sun to rise that morning. And the foolishness that Paul has in mind here is of the heart and the mind which does not see this truth. You know, they are, are are ones especially who think they have wisdom. They think they understand things. They boast in that understanding. But Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15 is speaking of them as fools because they are fools. And what's one of the, you know, the definitions we usually use when we talk about fools? You know, what is the definition of stupidity, right? It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, think about uh, the foolish Greek. What have they been doing for centuries? They have been sacrificing to Zeus, sacrificing to uh, Athena. They have been uh, offering uh, 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 prostitutes in these temples, hoping for fertility, hoping uh, not only for fertility of family, but fertility of fields. And what has Athena and what has Zeus done for the Greeks? Well, of course, we know they haven't done anything. Who has caused... The seed to rise out of the ground. It's the same God to whom they deny. The God who has caused their crops to rise out of the ground. The same God who has brought famines upon the land of Athens and of Sparta and Thessalonica and of Corinth. And as Paul is preaching here, as he's speaking to them of the resurrection, he is saying, "'Listen to me once more, you fools who think you are wise. For you have no idea what it is you are saying. But someone will say, "'How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what, sow, what, what you sow is not made alive until it dies.'" You know, it's interesting, Paul goes to this illustration, this illustration of the sea. And of course, it's an illustration that he's not making up. You know, it's not not Paul kind of standing here, racking his brain, trying to think, well, how would these people best understand my point? Our our, our, uh, forefather Paul was a student of the Scriptures. And he knew that his Savior had likewise used this illustration in John chapter 12. Jesus says, but Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. This idea of death producing life is given to us as a keen reminder of what has taken place in the resurrection of the dead. And what had to take place that we would be raised from the dead. You see, the seed, the promised seed of Genesis 3.15, the promised seed of the woman Uh, That is repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. Because again, it's worthwhile to remember once more that Jesus is not God's plan B. That Jesus was the plan for the salvation of sinners from before the foundational world. When the Lord our God spoke this creation into existence in Genesis chapter 1, the cross was already in view. Everything that takes place from Genesis 1 all the way to Matthew 27 is in preparation for the cross of Jesus Christ. Even the fall itself was uh, decreed by the Lord our God in order to show forth His glory and His majesty. As we hear Jesus Christ say here in John chapter 12, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And of course, when we think of the cross, again, we think of it as redeemed believers. When we look at the cross, we see the glory of God. We see the love of God. We see the willingness of the God-man Jesus Christ who considered it not robbery to be equal with God, but took on the form of man who was born of the virgin in Bethlehem, who took upon the sin of His people, who took on the sin of Adam upon Himself, and who died that death on the cross. But what is the glory in which Jesus is speaking of in John 12? Again, He's speaking thereof the resurrection. He's speaking thereof the glory that is His because of His faithfulness. Because He has kept that covenant that Adam could not. Again, He has shown forth His glory not only in His death, but most especially in His being raised from the dead. Again, think of that uh, picture that, that Paul is drawing there. Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain. Perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body." Again, Paul here, as he's drawing out this image, drawing out this metaphor. As he is making clear what is unclear to the Greeks, he is shaming them in their wisdom. Because the Greeks had all kinds of theories about how seeds came to be flowering plants. And their theories usually involved fairies or uh, uh, creatures of like kind. You know that, that the these fairies would come and that they would go into the earth and that they would uh, uh, kind of uh, perform a ritual over the seed and the seed would be magically changed in the blink of an eye into whatever. Uh, A tree or fruit or vegetable or grass whatever it might be it was taking place in that little uh, ceremony and that's why the fairies had to be uh, taken care of you know that's why they had these little statues outside their house so that the fairies knew that the people there cared for them and you think and you hear that and you think boy their audacity in calling us fools. But again, think about uh, the ignorance of unbelief. Again, unbelief believes in fairies, believes in creatures like this that perform magic overseas. But again, think also in the nature of what Paul is doing here in trying to awaken the minds of these Greeks into the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, how often in our own uh, attempts to try and figure out how this works, we also become fools. You know, we hear, especially in our day, uh, of the uh, uh, of different ideas of how the resurrection came to be. You know, you'll hear these supposedly smart people say that, well, Jesus really was just in a coma, right? That these ignorant people you know, people from the first century didn't understand how it worked. And, well, look, they buried people alive all the time. You know, it's really kind of interesting the history of that. You know, they developed a, uh, a, a system wherein they would put a bell down in the hole they dug. And if the person woken from their, uh, uh, their coma, guess what they did? And they probably did it very, very, uh, you know, uh, fit violently. I'm sure all of us would likely do the same if we were buried alive, but they would ring the bell and then they would get dug up. So they were aware of these things. Again, it's one of the interesting things about our age, and this is true of most ages, is we like to think of the people who came before us as dumb rudes. And we're the people with all the wisdom, with all the smarts, and with all the knowledge. And rest assured, in centuries to come, people write books about how dumb those people in the 21st century were. Well, what we see Paul doing here is telling these people the same thing that he tells us today. The beauty of the resurrection is in the fact that the Lord our God has brought life out of death. The Lord our God, the same God who brought the creation itself out of nothing, the same God who formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, is the same God who has raised His Son from the dead. Is the same God who has raised us from the dead. And just as this seed died in order to make life, the Lord Jesus Christ has died in order to give life to His people. It's one of the reasons why we see Paul and John also use that language of Jesus Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection. Again, they mean in there not just that as in uh, the Levitical law, you know, the first fruits were given to the temple, you know, given to the you know, The best of the fruit was given to the priest. But the idea there is, the first fruits, is that Jesus Christ is the testimony to each one of us that just as the first Adam died and received that covering... Just as the first Adam was unable to fulfill the promise, unable to fulfill the covenant, the second Adam has done that work. He has completed what Adam failed to do. And because he has done that, we who were dead in Adam have been made alive in Jesus Christ. Paul will go at length in Romans chapter 5 to talk about the nature of of, of this work. But again, that's something that's vital for each one of us to understand about the nature of our salvation and of the work of the resurrection in our lives today. And sometimes we can kind of cordon off the resurrection to a couple of weeks every year. But one of the things that we see in the very early in the church is that Easter was every Sunday. That's one of the reasons why uh, the Apostle John in Roman in Revelation chapter one speaks of himself as being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, because Jesus Christ forever changed the nature of this day. Again, he has who has moved uh, the Christian Sabbath or the Sabbath from in the Old Covenant the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week has forever changed the first day unto the day of the Lord. And in doing that, it is an expression of how the Lord God, through Jesus Christ, has changed us. And so when we gather together on the Lord's Day to worship God, we are celebrating the resurrection. Just as Paul here is reminding the Corinthian church that they are no longer who they were before they came to faith. But that they are resurrected people. They are living in a real sense in their resurrected bodies. For just as the seed had died and became a plant, so you too have died to your sin and are now reborn as new creatures in Jesus Christ. Again, the seed does not remain seed. The seed, as Paul says here, it turns into what? Again, what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain. Perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body and that's, that's part and parcel of the new life that we have in Jesus Christ is that while we await uh, that uh, that that glorified body that we will receive in the day of the day of judgment today we are living in that resurrected reality in that spiritual body that Paul speaks of here in 1 Corinthians 15 It's one of the reasons why Paul earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians speaks of the nature of sin in the way that he does. In in the well-known passage in 1 Corinthians 6, he says again, All things are lawful for me, uh, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Again, he's speaking here of the reality of the new life. The reality of who he is now as Paul, redeemed sinner. And as Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, it's not what enters a man that defiles him, it's what comes out of him. And Jesus there is speaking especially to believers. And reminding them that what comes out of them is a testimony of who they really are. Of course, we heard that in the call to worship from John 15. Again, we who are made a part of the vine, Jesus Christ, are to bring forth what? We're to bring forth fruit. And again, that language of bringing forth fruit is used later by the Apostle John to speak about the nature of the Christian. Are we bringing forth fruits meat for repentance? Are we bringing forth fruits that show that we have died to sin and live in light of this resurrection body, in this spiritual body that we have received in Jesus Christ? Paul continues here in 1 Corinthians 6, Again, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Again, this, this, this keen reminder to us that we are not ourselves in this life. But we are who we are because we are united to Christ by faith. And we are no longer the individuals that we were before we testified of Christ. But we have been spiritually raised from the dead and been given this new body, this new creation, this new reality, this new identity. And are we to take this new identity and unite it with sin? Are we to bring it into, uh, into opportunities for wickedness? Are we to say that, well, the grace of God is sufficient to forgive me of my sins, so it doesn't really matter what I do from day to day? Well, the Apostle Paul here is using harlotry as an example, but his point here can be applied to any of the Ten Commandments, to any of the moral law. And this is why Paul there in 1 Corinthians 16 will speak in the way he does. Again, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. Again, what is the knowledge of God? What is this knowledge that Paul says Christians are to have? It's that knowledge which begins with who we are in Jesus Christ. That we are no longer ourselves. We no longer belong to us. We no longer belong to our father the devil. But we are of our Savior Jesus Christ. Paul in Ephesians will say that we are one faith, one baptism, one body. And why is that? Because we are in Christ. So brothers and sisters, as we continue to rest and trust in our Savior Jesus Christ, again, let us consider the nature of our own lives. Are we living as those who are united to Jesus Christ? Again, do we consider that union with Christ when we enter into sin? Do we consider the fact that Jesus Christ is not only united to us by faith, but that Jesus Christ is living in heaven at this very moment, watching over this earth? Again, sometimes we live as those foolish Greeks who think that fairies cause seeds to rise out of the ground. Sometimes we live as those who think that our gods remain in the temple's and are there for us to go and see whenever we need them. But one of the great events of the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ was that ripping of the veil in the temple. And of course, we understand that God wasn't actually restricted to the Holy of Holies, but the image of that tearing was a call, was a sign, a reminder... That in the New Covenant, the Lord our God is literally everywhere. That where you go, the Lord God is already present. And so Paul here is really not interested in what the foolish Greeks think. He's using the foolish Greeks as kind of a foil to speak to the Christians in Corinth. And to speak to us. And to tell us once more that we who have been raised in incorruption, we who were sown in dishonor have been raised in glory. We who were sown in weakness have been raised in power in the name of Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, the God who has given of His own life who went to that cross bearing the sins of His people, who went to that cross knowing that He would be raised from the dead in three days, knowing that the same God, the Father, who made the promise to Him in the heavenly decree would bring Him out of that tomb, would raise Him up into the heavenly places, where He sits this day. Brothers and sisters, let us know that truth in our own hearts. That we have been raised from the dead. We have been brought into that new life in Jesus Christ. We are the bearers of His glory. We are the image of God because we have been cleansed from the wickedness from the evil from the sin of our former manner of life. And we have been called as this new creatures to live in obedience to the law of God, not neglecting a jot or a tittle, because we are of Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious heavenly Father, we give